Welcome. I am Michael Kessler from Georgetown University and the chair of the AAR's Committee for the Public Understanding of Religion. On behalf of the committee, it is my great pleasure to welcome you to this afternoon's Marty Forum with Wendell Berry. The Public Understanding of Religion Committee fosters attention to the broad public understanding of religion and the role of religion in public life, both among the academy and in the academy's outward role in raising the public understanding of religion. One of our most delightful tasks every year is to select the recipient of the annual Martin E. Marty Award for the Public Understanding of Religion. The award was established in 1996, and the first recipient was Martin Marty. Appropriate. <laughs> the very paradigm of a scholar whose work aimed and aims to inform both the academy and broader publics about the complexities of religion in our lives. The award, and now I quote from the charge, quote, recognizes extraordinary contributions to the public understanding of religion. The award goes to those whose work has a relevance and eloquence that speaks not just to scholars, but more broadly to other publics as well. The contribution can be any medium, for example, books, films, TV, public speaking, so long as it is based in scholarship in religion. Nominees need not be AAR members or academics. Our esteemed recipient for this year's award, Wendell Berry, is a prolific and penetrating poet, novelist, environmentalist, farmer, essayist, scholar, and cultural critic, and I could go on, Norman Will. <laughs> Woven throughout his many works is a patient insistence on the dangers of unbridled economic and intellectual instrumentalization, which disrupt communities and disrupt and even destroy the ecologies of building, thinking, farming, eating, interacting among other humans and the world around us. In short, he critiques with sophisticated analysis, I think that rivals many in the academy, and skillful prose, those forces that imperil the very possibility of flourishing life. The committee is delighted to recognize the impact that Mr. Berry's work has had on raising public understanding about the role of religion among all of these other diverse cultural and ecological challenges. The focus of this panel will be a conversation between Mr. Berry and Professor Norman Wurzba, Professor of Theology and Ecology at Duke University Divinity School. So now it is my pleasure to introduce Norman, who will make an introduction of uh, a more proper introduction of Wendell Berry. Norman Wurzba pursues research and teaching interests at the intersections of theology, philosophy, ecology, and agrarian and environmental studies. He lectures frequently in Canada and the United States. His work focuses on understanding and promoting practices that can equip both rural and urban church communities to be more faithful and responsible members of the creation. Current research is centered on recovery of the doctrine of creation and a restatement of humanity in terms of its creaturely life. Among his published works include The Paradise of God, Renewing Religion in an Eco Ecological Age, and Living the Sabbath, Discovering the Rhythms of Rest and Delight. 
His most recent books include Food and Faith, A Theology of Eating, and Making Peace with the Land, God's Call to Reconcile with Creation. Professor Wurzba also serves as general editor for the book series Culture of the Land, a series in the new agrarianism published by the University Press of Kentucky, and is co-founder and executive committee member of the Society for Continental Philosophy and Theology. With that, please join me in welcoming Professor Wurzba and Mr. Wendell Berry. Wendell, it's a great honor for me to be here on this stage with you. Well, Norman, likewise. <laughs> I, I do need to tell people a little bit about you, if that's all right. Be discreet. I will be discreet. <laughs> so, Wendell is born in Henry County, Kentucky, and uh, was formally educated at the University of Kentucky, but informally educated by a generation of farmers, men and women. And I think you would agree that your informal education was at least as important as your formal education. And we'll, we'll have opportunity to talk about that. It lasted longer. Lasted longer. Uh, he taught for a number of years, uh, first at Georgetown College. I like to say Georgetown College as opposed to Georgetown University. Not that I have anything against Georgetown University, but this is the school where I taught for a number of years and got to know Wendell. Taught also at Stanford University, uh, New York University. You've been the recipient of multiple awards. I won't list them all. And I think one of the more remarkable things about you is that you have done so many things so well. You have served as a teacher, a farmer, a neighbor, a writer, and the list of books is now approaching 50. You have been a conservationist, working for the protection of the forests and streams and mountains and agricultural lands of Kentucky and beyond. You are, I think, without question, the leading agrarian of our time. And what that means, we'll have some time to talk about. I think one of the great testaments to the character and quality of your work is that you have given us in your work fertile ground for people like me to settle in and see what we can do and what can grow. You are a cherished friend of many people and it is one of my great joys to call you a friend. And this is only in part why it's such a pleasure for me to congratulate you on this Martin Marty Award and to be able to say in public that you are now the recipient as an Academy Award winner. <laughs> so you can now join the ranks of the famous in, in Hollywood. I want to start by having you talk a little bit about your upbringing because it's important. You say in an early essay of yours called A Native Hill, I seem to have been born with an aptitude for a way of life that was doomed, although I did not understand it at the time. Free of any intuition of its doom, I delighted in it and learned all I could about it. In my generation, I am something of an anachronism. 
I am less a child of my time than the people of my age who grew up in the cities or than the people who grew up here in my own place five years later after I did. In my acceptance of 20th century realities, there has had to be a certain deliberateness, whereas most of my contemporaries had them simply by being born to them. Can you speak a little bit about the circumstances of your time and your upbringing and how that has shaped the way you think? That was written a long time ago. and I would add now that for a while under the influence of my formal education, I pretty much accepted uh, the, the world and technological progress and those things as uh, at uh, the same value uh, that they came with, uh, that they gave to themselves. It took me a long time to, to recognize and own up to the, to the uh, predilection that I acknowledge there. What, um, th there were several privileges in my upbringing, uh, one was um, geographic to a considerable extent. The, the farming in the country that I grew up in was highly diversified and um, actually uh, in the hands of its uh, best practitioners, pretty good. Um, it could in fact be exemplary very few acres on any given farm would be broken in any given year. It was mostly in grass. Uh, we had a diversity of livestock and crops plus the subsistence economy. Uh, that is, on the farms that were conventional or, or traditional in that, in that area. Another uh, good fortune was that from my father and his father and uh, a handful, a few younger people near my own age, um, I listened, I got to listen to people who thought that Farming was um, a matter of primary interest and value. You didn't hear those people say, I'm just a farmer. And you didn't, by the way, hear their wives say, I'm just a housewife. Because um, both sides of that equation were employing arts that were in my opinion, um, fairly high arts and uh, demanding and pride-giving. So one of the definitions, I suppose, of agrarianism as I learned it, I didn't hear the word agrarian until I was a sophomore in college, but um, 
I suppose one of its definitions is love for farming. And the, um, the inclination to put land first. And this is, uh, um, this understanding of the primary importance of land goes way back in our cultural history. Uh, you'll, you'll find it in Virgil's fourth Ecloga, or fourth Georgic, I think. And, and uh, uh, before that, the idea, as, as the uh, older people I grew up around put it, was they may shoot me, but they'll never starve me. <laughs> they run me, run, may run me off, but they'll never starve me out. And this meant that if they had a spot of land to grow food on, they were going to use it for growing food. And uh, the abundance and the quality of food in comparison with now is astonishing. Well, there's a great deal of talk about food insecurity in our societies. And perhaps you could reflect a little bit about how we, for the first time as a human race, have entered the urban context in, in great measure so that now we have fewer people living on farms than ever before. And we could say that this is just the loss of a farm and good riddance, right? Marx referred to rural life as idiocy. And so to move off from the farm was considered to be making progress. But, of course, you would call our attention to a different way of thinking about that. One of the things that uh, access to land uh, provides is a measure of freedom from the money economy. Just as uh, participation in a neighborhood uh, provides to a certain extent the same freedom because in a, in a neighborhood you're receiving help I mean, I'm taking this word neighbor very seriously. In a neighborhood, you're receiving help that you don't pay for. This is increasingly important to me, and uh, I've, I'm growing increasingly aware of the, of the implications of living entirely by purchase. Because along with the reduction of um, the worth of things to quantity and measure goes the reduction of things, uh, of the worth of things to their price, which is an awful thing to happen. And it's, it's happening pretty thoroughly with us. And this means that money is feasting upon things as a kind of uh, canker or rust. And it is consuming things. It's using things up that ought to last. So we're in a time now where environmentalists tell us that so many of our landscapes are in serious decline, distress, exhaustion. And in your writing, you've talked so much about the health of the land. The health is the operative term around which we ought to be thinking. And 
I want to again read a little bit of what you have written uh, because this gets to the heart of your work, which is to see healthy communities in vibrant economies succeeding on healthy land. You say, we have lived by the assumption that what was good for us would be good for the world. And this has been based on the even flimsier assumption that we could know with any certainty what was good even for us. We have fulfilled the danger of this by making our personal pride and greed the standard of our behavior to the world and to the incalculable disadvantage of the world and every living thing in it. We have been wrong. We must change our lives so that it will be possible to live by the contrary assumption that what is good for the world will be good for us. And that requires that we make the effort to know the world and to learn what is good for it. Could you talk a little bit about how you think oh, the effort to know the world looks? That's a rant. <laughs> it's a rather um, eloquent rant, though. It's maybe within the category of rant that's, that does very well. <laughs> but I think we've got to be um, a little more articulate and, and uh, careful than that. Um, the, the great mistake is in, is in separating ourselves. This is an age of divorce, and I'm not talking just about marital divorce. I'm talking about the divorce of everything from everything. Beauty from utility, for instance. Uh, uh, well, let's not get into that. But... Um, <laughs> One of the great mistakes, one of the great worst divorces is uh, to separate the land from the people. And my uh, example of this that I've been thinking about a lot lately is that in 1963, 50 years ago, um, my great compatriot Harry Caudle of Whitesburg, Kentucky, published a book called Night Comes to the Cumberland. Some of you may, have, may, may know of it. But what he told, uh, in effect, there was the history of the coal fields, the Cumberland Plateau, and uh, how immensely rich in timber and, and coal and other minerals that region had been at the start and how the presence of that mineral and timber uh, had, in the end, impoverished the people. It's an almost intolerable paradox that a place like Pike County, Kentucky, this would be Harry's example, one of the richest areas of its size in the world should have some of the poorest people in the world. Well, that uh, book attracted a lot of attention. It attracted attention in, in Washington, with the result that the war on poverty came to eastern Kentucky and may have done some good. But the result, 50 years later, is that the people are still poor. And the... Um, instruction that I take from that is that you can't 
cure the poverty of people while you let their land be destroyed under their very feet. So you have to think of those two things, land and people, really as one thing. The people are not going to thrive. We are not going to thrive. We here in this room are not going to thrive if our country doesn't thrive. Well, there's another, another fine example of a divorce, the divorce between um, patriotism and nationalism. We've, we've made it pretty clean now. Uh, the nation really is gobbling up the country. Could you talk a little bit about how, as urbanites, one of the difficulties we might have is in understanding or even seeing the kind of destruction that is at work in the very logic of our economy and what perhaps you might suggest to folks as a way to reverse some of their consumer living to, to get at these problems? I, I don't... I, I go with a good deal of, of trepidation into this uh, distinction between urban and rural people um, because uh, well most rural people now are city people they live like city people they buy everything they consume and they have urban ambitions urban entertainments they all talk the same they all learn to talk from television um, so it's, it's hard to draw that line, so we need to step back a little bit and, and again, try to be more particular and, and a little more articulate about this business. Um, after World War II, the war industries had nowhere to go. It's a great embarrassment to war industries not to have war. And uh, after World War II, a committee, uh, a, a gathering of academic and corporate um, executives gathered together, and they were known as the Committee for Economic Development. I think I have that, uh, the preposition right, for economic development. And their conclusion was that there were too many farmers. Um, they needed to become, uh, they needed to join the labor pool. And they needed to join uh, the, the, uh, the, the consumers. They needed to become consumers of industrial products. And the problem that would be raised, of course, by their departure from the landscapes, from the economic landscapes of the country, would be how to keep those landscapes productive. And they had the answer. The war industries would gear up to supply um, uh, mechanical and chemical technologies that would replace the people. 
that would do the work that the people had been doing. So the Industrial Revolution came uh, uh, fully to, into agriculture. The uh, farm would become a factory like other factories and it would be run increasingly by um, people who were essentially absentees um, and by remote control. Now the problem was that nobody ever said how many were too many and nobody ever tried to say how many were necessary. I really didn't have a way to think about this until Wes Jackson came up with the idea of the eyes to acres ratio. The eyes to acres ratio really has the force of law, but it's very difficult to define. It's not, not a simple law. How many people ought to be watching these uh, landscapes in use? And it is a law that land that is in use by humans needs to be watched over and cared for by, by humans. But the fact is, the, our condition is that as the population of land users, landowners, has dwindled, the number, the ratio of eyes to acres has grown worse until now. Over great stretches of the country, nobody much is watching. Um, corn and soybeans grown by the best management practices require two visits a year. You go out to plant in the spring and you go out in the fall to harvest. And if some people are, are um, farming 10 or 20,000 acres, you can see that this land is pretty literally not within human care. So the people who ought to know about land use and ought to know the difference between good and bad land use are just gone, nearly all gone. We don't have many of them left. It's easy to imagine most people driving through Iowa at the height of the growing season and seeing those vast green cornfields and assuming this is a picture of abundance without knowing at all the uh, poison that's flowing out of the fields or the gullies that are wearing out under those corn stalks. So we can see, but we don't really see. We don't have the kind of sympathetic attention. We don't have the sympathetic attention and we don't have the knowledgeable attention, the, the, the knowing. I saw, not too far from my home, a tractor out with a grater blade filling gullies in what had been for years a soybean field on sloping land, filling the gullies so they could drive over it with their equipment and plant it again this year. And I can show you now that the beans are and corn are harvested, I can show you the erosion. This can't last. But you see, this puts this question of what urban people can do in, in a context that's very demanding and very troubling. 
in talking to this audience, I would uh, hasten about now to put this into the context of religion. Uh, because it raises the question of what you do with, with gifts. We could call them divine gifts if we're persuaded that way, but that's the land, the water, the air, the creatures. We can't make any of those things. We can take care of them or not. That's the only choice we have. We can't choose to make land. If we waste it, then it becomes a, an exhaustible commodity like oil. You can't get it back once it's gone. Uh, so the, uh, the question of what you do with divine gifts becomes a very practical question, very quickly a practical question. And a, a, but, but it also is a, becomes an interesting question. In one of your essays, you talk about the religions of this world as having one of their primary objectives, a solicitude to reality, as a calling us into a deeper appreciation for the world that we inhabit, an appreciation for the world's mystery, an acknowledgement of our ignorance in the face of it, and our need for humility and gratitude, and that failing that basic solicitude, we're going to become destructive and violent. And so a lot of your writing has been about peaceableness and violence. And, and I wanted, it, if you could read... Did I say that it ought to be religi uh, religion call us to this solicitude for... To humility in, in face of the mystery of the world that we, that we live within. And, and would you read one of your poems, The Want of Peace, as a way to, to talk a little bit about that? This is another from a long time ago. All goes back, this is called The Want of Peace. All goes back to the earth. And so I do not desire pride of excess or power but the contentments made by men who have had little, the fisherman's silence receiving the river's grace, the gardener's musing on rose. I lack the peace of simple things. I am never holy in place. I find no peace or grace. We sell the world to buy fire. Our way lighted by burning men, and that has bent my mind and made me think of darkness and wish for the dumb life of roots. Well, that was one of my sinking spells back during the <laughs> back during the uh, uh, Vietnam War. Um, One, one, Maybe it has a religious impulse. Well, one, one of my favorite things about your writing is that you have, over the years, written a number of Sabbath poems. And, and these Sabbath poems, there's a great variety of them, obviously. But they, they also are trying to call us into a different way of, of existing in the world and seeing the world in, in fresh ways. And... I have another one that's a little longer. Well, now, I didn't write those poems with the idea of calling anybody into anything. I, um, it's a little bit more complicated than that. It's trying to, to make the terms of my own peace. Mm. 
and uh, uh, to find out the terms on which a human being, a human being, namely me, can come to rest. Now, it, uh, these issues don't belong only to me. So in that sense, they are, are public, and it's uh, le legitimate to make them public. Uh, but the question of what you have to do to come legitimately to rest mm -hmm. becomes a question of, uh, it becomes an economic question, not a, com not a question about how to have an, uh, what we call the economy, but to have an economic life that permits you this reprieve in which you can sit down and and come to rest. So I'm supposed to read this one? Yeah, it's, it's, a, it's a little bit longer, but it's, it's one I particularly like. So I, I chose poems mostly because I wanted to hear you read them. This is, this is very early. And one thing I was trying to do in these early Sabbath poems was to accommodate um, the uh, tr tr traditional forms of English poetry to my own place and language. And they called Sabbaths because uh, they're often written, maybe the early ones were almost exclusively written on... While you were on, in church, right? Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> on Sunday mornings. Um... I'd, I, I'm, I, I have described myself with some honesty as a bad-weather churchgoer. <laughs> when I go, it's apt to be uh, too uncomfortable to go out in, into the woods or out along the, the, the creek. But now, I did, as growing up, I, I, I was, um, you know, made to go to church. And uh, I did hear a lot of the, the King James Bible. And uh, occasionally a, a, a good sermon. <laughs> I mean, a sermon that would, that would pull you up in your seat. It was, uh, our little church was favored with some very bright people, as a matter of fact, and some that weren't so, but... Um, <laughs> Nevertheless, that stuck, and and so the idea of Sabbath became an idea that I that I became fascinated to explore. Well, these poems don't have titles, or some of, some of them, most of them don't. Another Sunday morning comes, and I resume the standing Sabbath of the woods, where the finest blooms of time return. And where no path is worn but wears its makers out at last and disappears in leaves of fallen seasons, the tracked rut fills and levels. Here nothing grieves in the risen season. Past life lives in the living. Resurrection is in the way each maple leaf commemorates its kind by connection 
outreaching understanding. What rises, rises into comprehension and beyond. Even falling, raises in praise of light. What is begun is unfinished. And so the mind that comes to rest among the bluebells comes to rest in motion, refined by alteration. The bud swells, opens, makes seed, falls, is well. By becoming what it is, miracle and parable exceeding thought, because it is immeasurable. The understander encloses understanding, thus darkens the light. We can stand under no ray that is not dimmed by us. The mind that comes to rest is tended in ways that it cannot intend, is born, preserved, and comprehended by what it cannot comprehend. Your Sabbath, Lord, thus keeps us by your will, not ours, and it is fit. Our only choice should be to die into that rest or out of it. In a number of your essays, you've been writing more recently about how we think about education, how we're practicing it in our society, and your concern about our inability or unwillingness perhaps to acknowledge human ignorance and the smallness of our comprehension in the face of the world's mystery. So we have a room that has a number of educators in it. Can you talk a little bit about how you have been thinking about education? You taught for a while at university and have departed from that, that scene, but what do you recommend to people here as they think about the instruction they like to do? What I more and more understand uh, is that there isn't any important question that we have to deal with that can be answered in a department. And to me, this um, is a real indictment of our educational system because it means we're, we're turning out people, for one thing, incapable of thinking about what they're doing. But also it means that we're not getting the questions that we most need to ask answered. Are we even finding the right questions? Well, um, my friend Wes Jackson and I have talked a lot about this, among other things, jokes and stories and laughter. And, um, well, a question like this, where are we, is, is a question that doesn't get asked. And I think uh, we're letting our children graduate from high school now 
without ever knowing where they are. I remember years ago reading an essay by a fellow named Eric Zensi in which he called us the rootless professors who are constantly exhorting our students to go to the exotic foreign and to despise home, small places. Well, that's, I experienced that, and I remember grieving when I was a, a teenager because of this news that had come to me from my teachers that to amount to anything at all, I'd have to leave home. But there is a difference, and a critical difference between a career and a life. And too many people now are living in their careers. A life is a complex matter. And it's uh, apt to be much more imperfect than a career. You know, a career passes certain marks or gongs. Well, bong, you've, you've passed that one now. You've got your uh, MA. Bong, PhD, bong, assistant professor. And it goes that way. Bong, another thousand dollars. <laughs> Uh, but a life is going to attach you, it seems to me, to a place and to people, and uh, they're going to disappoint you by not agreeing with you <laughs> on all points. Mm -hmm. It's a, a, a terrible mistake, you know, to assume that you're going to be agreed with. I mean, even by your wife, who has every reason to agree with you. <laughs> well, Tanya's never disagreed with you, I'm sure. Never. Mm -hmm. and, uh, but, but she's exceptional. Mm -hmm. And my place and my animals have never disagreed with me either. It's an unusual life I've had. No. No, if you're going to have a real encounter, that is, you're going to really live with somebody or somewhere, then you're going to be confronted with, with opposition, correction, uh, your own mistakes, and um, uh, you're going to have to suffer a, a certain amount of, of humiliation. But you're also going to learn a lot. And uh, that, I suppose, is what what is, is uh, necessary. And a, a life means uh, to involve yourself, really this is a kind of a shorthand for it, but it's to involve yourself in an economy. Not the economy, but an economy. You could, or you could say a household And that, it seems to me, is, is uh, the circumstance in which um, religion, religion, religious faith, uh, begins to come into relevance and, and to be interesting. Uh, a lot of the religion that I heard growing up was all about going to heaven. And you know, Mark Twain was right about it. It's a bore. <laughs> <laughs> but there's another dimension to this that I, I want to draw on. This, and again, is something that you talked about earlier in your writing. You, you talked about how the decision to go back to Kentucky, leave New York, and to come home was important to you. And you, you write, again, from this early essay in Native Hill, when I lived in other places, I looked on their evils with the curious eye of a traveler. 
I was not responsible for them. It cost me nothing to be a critic, for I had not been there long, and I did not feel that I would stay. But here, now that I am both native and citizen, there is no immunity to what is wrong. It is impossible to escape the sense that I am involved in history. That's right. Um, I think that's very important because so many of us who are in academic worlds think of ourselves as offering criticism, but perhaps have no place that calls us to responsibility or no history. And fidelity is such an important term. Well, now I'm speaking for myself now, and I'm not, uh, I, I don't think of myself as exemplary. I, I'm not offering myself as an, uh, as a, uh, an, 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 an example that ought to be imitated by anybody else because everybody's circumstances is different from everybody else's. I'd, I first have to to, uh, to to say flat out that I didn't come decide to come home because I wanted to do the work that I turned out to have done there. I didn't have any high motive. I did it because I had a chance to and I wanted to. I felt a relief when we headed home at last that was complex and took me a long time to understand it. But when I got home, the f uh, I knew that I was uh, taking on problems and forms of wickedness that belonged to me, that I was born into. And that you were going to stay with. That I was going to stay with, that I wasn't going to solve in my time, but that I had to... To think about, and then I came uh, face to face with the examples of people like my father and Harry Caudle, who had taken their their degrees, their law degrees, as it happened, and and gone home. And um, with some uh, effect, tried to. Uh, help. I don't know. I don't know how uh, how original sin works in into all this, but it's hard not to believe in it. You know, um, there's something badly wrong here, and it's not just what we living have done, the badly wrong things are things that were put here by our predecessors. And uh, so the criticism of history is very much a part, the knowledge of history is very much a part mm -hmm. of what we're talking about. But the idea of heaven, I don't think is going to take religion very far. Um, uh, even people don't, it takes an extraordinary person to give a lot of thought to hell. I mean, as represented in the sermons I heard. Um, the, nevertheless, as I said, I took in enough out of the, uh, the scripture, out of the hymns, some of them, um, that it, that it stuck, and uh, I've kind of grown up 
by now into a wish that that uh, that the Christian gospel would amount to something in this world. And I don't think it's amounting to very much. And I don't think it's going to amount to very much until it takes, it, it unifies itself with economy. I'm not saying economics, I'm saying economy. How we live. And uh, this, uh, the great, the great principle in that tradition that most recommends itself to me is the principle of neighborhood. Neighborhood in the largest possible sense that can be imagined, but to be a neighbor, and we know a neighbor to your neighbor, and that we have that awful definition of neighbor as somebody who needs you, who needs your help, how perfectly awful and intimidating this is. It, it's very much to be suffered. But now we know that we've got to extend that idea of neighborliness. We can learn something from the so-called primitive people about this. We're neighbors also to the other creatures. And uh, the, the world, in, in, in the earth and all its inhabitants and these other creatures um, we're being begged somehow to learn the courtesies and the manners that can help us to live at peace with those creatures we live from them I mean there's a kind of a bottom line cruelty that we can't escape uh, vegetarianism doesn't touch it any, any, anybody who's living is living at the expense of other creatures, taking up room, and so on. But how to bring this neighborly relationship to some kind of peace, some kind of real accomplishment that you can point to? In one of your essays, you talk about the worry you have that the love that gets talked about in religion is too much of an abstraction. And that's an abstraction that's really founded on a kind of dualism that still is at the heart of at least Christian faith. That what matters is what goes on in your soul and the body and therefore the whole realm of economy and neighborliness doesn't factor in quite so much. Yeah, you have to, um, you know, you have to bring this word and this idea of love into some kind of presence between you and whoever's facing you. Something else that's pretty, pretty terrible or can be. Um, but it's got to particularize itself. Love has to wear a face. It has to wear the face of a neighbor that you, may not dis, that you may not like at all. How terrible. In that case, you've got to resort to hypocrisy, you know. We've got to get better at it. How to act like you love this person, whether you do or not. Well, I found an old poem I wrote not very long ago. It has a couplet in it. It says, I don't, I don't love everybody, damn it. A man must love within his limit. <laughs> <laughs> okay, so with that, I'd like you to read another poem. It's, this is a, a much more recent one, which is about 
uh, your your understanding of well partial understanding of heaven. Yeah. And uh, again, I just wanted to hear. You I like that. the idea of heaven. I always wanted to go there if I could have some choice about my entertainment. <laughs> As I say, the the, uh, the way it's presented is fairly dull to right. me. I never liked it. I, I never wanted to go to the one as, as described. Well, Mark Twain said, you know, uh, heaven for climate, hell for company. <laughs> <laughs> well, yeah, this is a fairly recent poem, and it, it's, uh, you know, full of my dilemma. I don't, these, these poems are not answers. This is from 2006. O oh, saints, if I am even eligible for this prayer, though less than worthy of this dear desire, and if your prayers have influence in heaven, let my place there be lower than your own. I know how you longed here where you lived as exiles for the presence of the essential being and maker and knower of all things. But because of my unruliness or some erring virtue in me never rightly schooled, some error clear and dear, my life has not taught me your desire for flight, dismattered, pure and free. I long instead for the heaven of creatures, of seasons, of day and night. Heaven enough for me would be this world as I know it, but redeemed of our abuse of it and one another. It would be the heaven of knowing again. There is no marrying in heaven, and I submit even so, I would like to know my wife again, both of us young again, and I remembering always how I loved her when she was old. I would like to know my children again, all my family, all my dear ones, to see, to hear, to hold more carefully than before, to study them lingeringly as one studies old verses, committing them to heart forever. I would like to know again my friends, my old companions, men and women, horses and dogs in all the ages of our lives, here in this place that I have watched over all my life in all its moods and seasons, never enough. I will be leaving how many beauties overlooked. A painful heaven this would be, for I would know by it how far I have fallen short. I have not paid enough attention. I have not been grateful enough. And yet this pain would be the measure of my love. In eternity's once and now, pain would place me surely in the heaven of my earthly love. Hmm. Oh, no, I don't want, I hope you don't do that to me again. I, <laughs> you just about made me cry. 
That about made me cry. I'm not going to read that in public. <laughs> when I'm with young people, they're often really frightened. And I think it's fair to say that for a lot of them, there's a kind of apocalyptic imagination that's swirling around, the sense that we're all doomed. Uh, lots of bad things that they're worried about. So how do you, in a context like this, talk about hope? I know you get asked this question a bunch, but I think it's still worth bringing it up here. Oh, yeah, I do too. Um, oh. I really pretty strongly dislike that genre of the end of something. The end of the world and so on. I grew up among, <laughs> among some old ladies who just loved the thought of the end of the world. <laughs> um, you know, if it would just go ahead and end, what a relief it would be. If, we, if, it, if it could end without us ending it, what a relief. But it looks like it may go on. And uh, that's, that presents itself as a real hardship, even to the older people, let alone the young. Uh, there, there's so much wrong, and the scale of what's wrong is so uh, immense so almost incomprehensible. And by the time you've been around a while, uh, you understand how unlikely it is that you're going to be able to make it much better. Flawed as you are, uh, dependent on what's wrong, implicated in what's wrong as you are, um, so, uh, being a human living in this world now is a very trying business. And some of the brighter young people find this out. Uh, some of the older people have found it out too. And, and um, um, the danger, and this is intolerable in the old people, the danger is that you'll just conclude there's nothing to be done. Mm -hmm. And you'll become uh, desperate. You, you'll uh, despair or become cynical. And uh, uh, just, you know, let it go to hell and relax. And that's kind of tempting. But then there's, uh, I think the source of, uh, of hope may be the, the survival so far of a lot of very likable things. I mean, you don't have to look very far. I mean, the, uh, the things that, that occur between humans who are in love with each other are wonderful. Uh, sometimes I fall back pretty hard on the butterflies and the... And the flowers, just, just what a privilege to have been around for this. So there's, there's beauty. 
and there's goodness. And uh, so the, uh, another better temptation comes along to try to have something to say or do in behalf, say, of goodness and, and beauty. Occasionally you come across a human who's done something just wonderful, you know, something really good. And um, uh, you come across another human with whom you can laugh. Those things. You want to say something in behalf of that possibility. And if you can't stop it from, from uh, finally coming to a crashing end, you might, maybe you can make it last a few minutes longer. And then I think that there's no possibility that it could ever get so bad that a capable person of goodwill couldn't do something to make it a little better. So what, what I t uh, try to tell young people is don't get into this. I want you to get into it, but don't get into it with the idea that you're going to save the world in five years or something or, or come to a solution to this great problem in five years. If you do, you'll, you'll quit. You won't, you won't last in it. But then to, to find a way to work, to find a way to go to work. I mean, in a way of making something, of, of making an actual something that, that makes things better and not a big thing, not a great thing, not a dramatic or spectacular thing, but something that makes things better, that I think can give you a sustaining hope. Uh, if you're capable of it yourself, if you see that other people are capable of it, that's hope giving. Uh, to Well, let me tell you a, a story. Back when I first got interested in, in strip mining up in the eastern Kentucky coal fields, I went to a hearing up in Frankfurt. And uh, hearings in Frankfurt are not hope-giving. Frankfurt is Frankfurt, the state Kentucky, capital. Frankfurt, Kentucky, my seat of government. Um, but uh, th this was a hearing into the damages that were being done to... to uh, people and land by the then uh, contour stripping where they just took a gouge out around the side of the mountain. And there was a row of people there that I could see by certain signs were the aggrieved from the coal fields, the people who had, who had been suffering uh, this this awful thing that was happening and the, at that time the um, miners didn't have to uh, the mine companies didn't have to compensate the surface owners they could destroy the whole surface and not give anybody a dime in, in reparation because of a deed known as the broad form deed that gave the miner access to the mineral so the, already that, that uh, way of of mining had sufferers, and so I could see them there, and I knew they were. And uh, they were 
let's uh, humbly dressed. And with him, there was a man in a neat suit with a nice, I think you called it a Palm Beach hat, nice summer straw hat, very carefully placed on his lap. And I got curious about him. And in one of the recesses of the hearing, I approached him and uh, I said, um, do you have land that's being strip mined? No. No, he said, I don't own any land. I'm a lawyer. I, I have a little law practice in, in um, Hazard. I said, oh, well, you're here then representing these people. No, he said, I don't represent anybody. And I said, well, why are you here? He said, I want to be on the side of the right. And to know that there's a right side is hope-giving. You also talk about the need for imagination moving forward because one of the real difficulties that we live with is the assumption that the way things are is the way things have to be. And so there's a, a room for imagination. There's room for attention to people from the margins. There is room for seeing visions of how things could be better. Uh, there's a lot wrong, too, with seeing visions. And uh, I was in a, a meeting lately in which I was asked ahead of time, along with everybody else, to contribute a narrative of the future. So I, my narrative of the future began, uh, I don't think there can be a narrative of the future because the future doesn't exist. Really, the only thing we can do for the future is to do the right thing now. I think I'm going to stand by that till I have to quit. Um, that doesn't mean there's something to to that particular use of the imagination. You see how this thing uh, might be made better. You set out to make it better, uh, but you better set out with the idea that you're probably going to adjust your vision. That there's going to be a rendezvous, so to speak. Um, a fateful, fairly trying rendezvous between what you've foreseen and what you turn out actually to be able to to do. I've had a lot of visions about uh, repairing old barns and so on, and, and uh, you hit limits. Your vision's going to hit limits. So you can't let your hope rest entirely on vision. But hope is a virtue, you know. That's the trouble with it. Uh, you have to have it. You just can't be caught without it. And this is a big job for somebody as old as I am. I'm afraid I'm going to get caught uh, sooner or later because some nights I don't have much hope. So before we open to questions from the floor, I want you to talk about one of the visions that you've actually been working on with Fred Kirshenman, Wes Jackson, some others, the 50-year farm bill, which is your response to the disaster that we have now with current farm bills. Could you talk a little bit about that and why you think it's important for okay. us to be thinking in terms of this 50-year right. farm bill? I can have a little elbow room to talk here now for you a do. minute. Okay. 
My subject now for this moment is land use. Land use. The use of what we'd call the economic landscapes as opposed to so-called wilderness, which is what gets the environmentalists all worked up. It's very hard to interest people now in land use. But uh, there's a kind of scale of, of land use that goes from good and conserving use with appropriate watchfulness and care and skill and the right ways to land use that's bad, land use that doesn't involve enough watching and caring and that subs does too much substituting of technology for people so that these, these huge corn and bean plantations that are coming into the country, driven into country, vulnerable country like mine by the market, market-determined agriculture. Well, among other things, that's going to cause you erosion. So you have to think about that if you want to get some idea of the extent of the, the, the problem, and we're talking about millions of acres, the acres that, that are now under the influence of the good food movement, the local food movement, and so on, that acreage is just tiny. Most of the land that's being used is being used badly. Forest, farm, or mine. So uh, the 50-year farm bill now gives us a chance to talk about uh, uh, a remedy, something we can do to make things better. And I don't know whether this is uh, uh, too much of the future for me or not, but anyway, I'm wholeheartedly involved. Uh, the 50-year farm bill is an idea, like a lot of ideas, that came straight out of West Jackson's head. Uh, the 50-year farm bill says, all right, here's where we're starting. Uh, the arable farmland in the United States is now 80% devoted to annual crops, which means... Uh, mostly annual monocultures. It certainly means uh, uh, that these crops are growing on land that has to be stirred, uncovered, uh, exposed to erosion every year. Also, uh, since most of them are grown in huge monocultures, sprayed uh, with some toxic substance every year. And if you put, uh, make a little effort and try to find out who's monitoring the effluent from these fields, uh, well, at least I have found so far after a year or two, the answer is nobody. The 50-year farm bill says let's change that in 50 years so that the ratio is exactly reversed from 80% annual and 20% perennial to 80% perennial and 20% annual. 
It doesn't take very long to read that farm bill, and I expect you can find it on the Land Institute website. I like it that I couldn't find a website if my life depended on it. I'm always recommending people to look up things on their computer. <laughs> but this is, a, this is a, a farm bill that actually addresses the problems of farming, namely uh, erosion, toxicity, and the uh, ruin of rural communities and the, uh, what we sometimes call the cultures of husbandry. And the abuse of livestock, too. It involves, because, you see, uh, uh, perennials include pastures mm -hmm. and hay crops. And this involves, I mean, I'm going to tell you how complicated all this is. This, it, if you're going to put all the land under perennial, uh, there's, uh, among others, you've got to have pastures. And pastures, if you're going to convert them to human food, have to be grazed by grazing animals that you then can eat. Try eating grass and see how far that takes you. <laughs> this means if you're going to have animals that you're going to have to go back to all these places that have bulldozed out their fence rows and build fences again. And this brings you to an interesting question. How many big boys are there left in this country who could dig a post hole? <laughs> <laughs> I don't know, but I'm fairly sure that, that the, they can uh, be taught. That that's a depressing number. Um, nevertheless, this is a thing that's doable because, after all, only two generations ago we were doing it pretty much. And we have, in addition to perennial pastures and hay crops, the perennial grain crops that Wes and his associates at the Land Institute are, have been developing over the last uh, nearly over the last 40 years, anyway. And uh, you might like to know, and this is hope-giving, too, that the Land Institute now has developed its first perennial grain. It's called Kernza. In about eight years, it'll be available in commercial quantities. Uh, at home, uh, we've been using it, making bread of it for several years now, and it's uh, kerns of flour. It's a, um, a, a um, western wheatgrass, I believe, that has been bred up for production. Um, I think that it's better flavored than wheat, but it's not going to be a matter of getting used to something you don't like when it comes around. But one is not enough, you see, because their idea is that it would be what uh, they call a perennial polyculture, which would mean, in effect, a farm field structured like the native prairie with deep roots, perennial cover, and all those other things Sir Albert Howard said that nature requires. Um, diversity, animals, great reserves of fertility, 
conservation of the rainfall and so on. All right, we'd like to leave a little time for people to ask questions, so if you have a question, you would need to speak rather loudly. Right here, hands up. Could you stand up, please, and speak loud? Yeah, Norman, you make sure I can hear. Okay, I'll repeat the question, too. Thank you very much for your talk. You spoke today and have spoken elsewhere about finding home in a place, but there are a lot of lives today that suggest that a place is really a privilege for home. People would find the home they're born into to be inhospitable by the time they reach adulthood or earlier. Could you talk a little bit about how you see those great migrations and great moves that have become so necessary um, in your reflections on home and place? Well, the, we don't want to see a back-to-the-land migration that's at all equivalent in volume or speed to the, uh, vibe, to the migration into the cities. Uh, it would, there would be a lot, there would be too many mistakes made. The tuition would be too high, and it would be paid by the land itself often. So uh, what's required in facing these problems that we've been talking about is patience, which is a, another terrible thing. <laughs> to be patient in an emergency calls for a lot of character and a lot of discipline, but that's what we want to, we want to see. Some people are going to make up their minds to go and try it. And the uh, problem for the people, the, advoca the advocates is to see that these people get the help they need, and that help is beginning to shape up. Uh, um, among other things, efforts to, uh, there are um, organizations now who are buying land, selling off the, uh, the, the easement for development, and then selling it to a young farmer cheaper than they, than they bought it. Those, those things are happening. But the price of land is prohibitive. Uh, the, the things that you need to know are difficult. Chances are that the, that the uh, farm landscape of the future will not much resemble the one of, say, my childhood or even Holmes County, Ohio at, at present. The, the plots may be smaller. Farms may be smaller because... Instead of uh, large grain crops, there'll be, be uh, growing, for instance, a variety of table crops, and the, the use of the land will be more intense. So, um, the, I, I, don't think, I don't think anybody I know on my side in this uh, wants to put people under undue pressure. We don't want to make people feel like they ought to be farming. Some people oughtn't to farm. <laughs> Probably a lot of people now oughtn't to, oughtn't to farm. And uh, it, it's something that would need to take place gradually. So you can imagine, you know, somebody hanging around a farmer's market, some kid. Could you use some help? Sure. Come out and try it, and you see how that might might grow into a, a new possibility. And probably, I think that sort of thing is happening. Um, but as for a place, Gary Snyder made the the, the answer. If well, suppose you don't have a place, well, Gary said, stop somewhere. <laughs> uh, 
stop somewhere with the, with the intention of staying there, of dealing with it. Don't repeat American history, which is to go to a place, make a lot of mistakes, uh, and then move away from the results and let the next comer inherit your bad work. That's, that needs to be on our minds. Mr. Berry, thank you for, for coming today. I'm curious if you might tell us what you have learned from Aldo Leopold and his writing. Oh, well, one thing to learn from Aldo Leopold's writings is, is the, uh, uh, the, the development, the evolution, so to speak, of Aldo Leopold himself. Uh, from a, a, a kind of a, a specialist in game management to the restorer of a rundown Wisconsin farm, and I think the uh, the other thing that is important to me about Aldo Leopold is that he saw the importance of good land use, that there might be an ecological basis for land use. And there are people, uh, uh, farmers and foresters, who are working hard at that and trying to develop an understanding of what we, we might mean by when we say sustainable. Uh, but those people are come out of uh, the side of Leopold that the conservation movement mostly has ignored. They've gone to his love of wilderness. And um, wilderness is not enough. I don't think I'm the only one who, I'm, I'm well, I know I'm not the only one because I'm, I'm uh, um, echoing things that no, people know more than I do have said. You can't save the integrity of the natural world in wilderness preserves. If you can't save the, in, that integrity in the landscapes we're using and living from, there's just not any hope for the rest of it. Thank you. Right here. I suspect that most of us really appreciate your view of religion being down to earth and the daily implications of that. And that leads me to sort of a, a, a real broad question. How, how would you re reply or converse about your religious character of your fiction? Uh, and one little part of that is, I don't know if you've heard, but there's a few well-known pastors who use your book, uh, Hannah Coulter, for instance, or Jaber Crow, in the training of new pastors, giving it to pastors and saying, this will help you do your job better. Um, what do you think of that? What's the religious character of your fiction? Um, well, I'm really surprised that the way religious people have taken up my work. I didn't expect it. Uh, but if, if the young pastors learn anything from my fiction, I'd hope it would be how difficult it's going to be. Um, and I've, I've kind of grown in my sympathy for preachers. I read, um, I wrote a story um, a, a, a preacher's wife dared me to write a story about a preacher's sexy wife. <laughs> and uh, I did. <laughs> it's called A Desirable Woman. It's in the new book of stories, A Place in Time. And uh, it really did kind of seize me, that idea 
uh, that, that she dared me to, to consider. And um, so I thought when I was going into it, well, why don't I write about an admirable preacher? I, I owe him. <laughs> um, I wrote about that preacher in, in uh, a place on earth I think where every Sunday reached his hand into that gap between the spirit and the flesh but I, I did try to write uh, in, in that story about a gifted minister uh, who who's, has the, the presence of a person who makes people feel better, who's wanted in time of trouble. And uh, you can't do that without writing about the troubles that he had, being unappreciated, for instance, uh, by people he's helped and so on, being called out at night by people who won't come to church. Um, but in thinking about that and in watching over a lot of years, I've been really impressed and, and, and sometimes very moved uh, by that mantle of power and authority that preachers wear. And it's not because they put it on themselves. It's because the congregations put it on them. And it's a terrible thing. Can we have time it's, for it's, it's a real cross to bear, I think. One more question. Thank you so much. You're such an inspiration to all of us. And I wonder if you've thought about how the land itself is really the sacred aspect. You know, we're talking about religion, but the land itself is sacred and how do we teach people how to appreciate that and I mean because I live in Colorado in a place where the water table is threatened by fracking by development by people who don't see how the rain comes down but it doesn't come anymore because it's all tarmacked over you know things like that so how do we get people to respect the land as sacred. Well, uh, and to be perfectly honest, I don't know. Uh, I don't know how you would reduce this job of work mm -hmm. to a nugget, you know, that could be handed on more or less intact to people and then they'd get it. Mm -hmm. But of course, religion doesn't confer divinity or sanctity. Religion helps us to perceive sanctity where it exists and then all I'm saying is that it's got religion now the Christian religion in particular which is the one I know the next step it's got to take after it has perceived the sanctity is to know how to respect it properly and that is a practical business that gets down to two and sweat. Um, if some, I don't know what you do about somebody who can't see it. We know we know force is limited, and uh, I'm, 
We, we mustn't advocate killing the people who can't see. <laughs> well, you may kill some possible converts. That's... <laughs> I think we should end with a poem on peace, Wendell. <laughs> peace of wild things. Oh, well, this is another, another old one. And it, uh, well, I'll, the peace of wild things. When despair for the world grows in me, and I wake in the night at the least sound, in fear of what my life and my children's lives may be, I go and lie down where the wood drake rests in his beauty on the water and the great heron feeds. I come into the peace of wild things who do not tax their lives with forethought of grief. I come into the presence of still water and I feel above me the day-blind stars waiting with their light. For a time I rest in the grace of the world and am free. Now you've got to let me comment. Okay, you can comment. You, uh, you can hear the 23rd Psalm behind that, of course. Uh, but I would now um, object to that uh, phrase, wild things. I'm getting really uneasy about that term, wild. Because after so many years of sitting and watching these, these, the original creatures of my place, what I see is that they're not wild. They're conducting domestic lives. <laughs> they're much better at it than we are. They're carrying on their domestic life, getting food, making shelters, raising their young, just like we're supposed to be doing in our domestic life. And moreover, that they see us as wild. And they're right. Because we're the ones who've shaken off our limits and are out of control have given up our manners and courtesies and our compassion. We're the wild things. They're scared of us and they're right. Wendell, you have done us. There you go. I need to make another comment. All this is overdone. <laughs> Misplaced. Be a little more critical. Thank you all for coming. <laughs>